remains of my creative existence is trying to find great music for my work. Um, this is something that I learned very, very early on when I decided to be a filmmaker years ago. I don't think I've ever talked about this on the show. After I went to film school, so go back and listen to my earlier episodes about uh, my time in New York and going to New York Film Academy. When I graduated from film school and after finishing all of my film projects and producing in a city that uh, I didn't live in, I realized that I could get a lot more done if I go back to a city that I do live in with the connections that I do have. And so I moved back home and I decided that I wanted to make a film. I wanted to do a, a new short film with the resources that I had built. And I spent about a year working on different projects and meeting new crew people and sort of putting together a team of folks that I felt like uh, would A, had the skills to, to bring to a film, B, uh, had the, the need and want to learn how to make a movie, um, and, but then C, were willing to jump in with a guy that just got out of film school and make a film. Uh, but I had to finance it. I had to get some cash uh, to make it happen. And so what I did is I put together, it's funny, I put together a fundraiser dinner, right? Um, because whenever you're doing something like this, even if you're doing a Kickstarter account, you still have to go back to the well. You have to go to the folks that you know, uh, that love your work, that want to support your work uh, for assistance, especially early on in your career. Um, and I was going to do a short film. It didn't need a huge budget. It was very small. I think it was under five grand. It was very, very inexpensive. Um, and so instead of just turning to friends and saying, hey, will you write me a check? I wanted to put on uh, a fundraiser dinner, of course, you know. And uh, I was at my parents' place and my dad being the one of the best cooks, um, he agreed to work with me and we put on... <laughs> We put on like an Italian, you know, pasta night, dinner night, where we transformed the entire backyard into a place with tables. We brought in tables and chairs and uh, we cooked and we made this meal and I wanted to present something. I wanted to show um, the potential investors my skill level. And I could have just played some of my films from film school but a lot of the stuff that I was trained in, a lot of the stuff that I was doing at New York Film Academy was silent filmmaking. We were shooting on 16 millimeter, black and white, wasn't really cutting sound. Um, so a lot of it didn't have any music or dialogue, right? Which can be kind of boring, especially if you're sitting in sort of a dinner environment. And I'm like, I have to cut something. And I was teaching myself at the time uh, the new nonlinear edit stuff. And the, let's go back in time here. All right, we're like 1999, 2000, okay? Um, and so at that time I was using, many of you may know it, I was using the old school Sony Vegas and I was teaching myself how to cut. Now I'm coming from uh, cutting on Steamback, the old uh, reel-to-reel, -reel, find a piece of film, literally cut that piece of film and tape it back together. And then going to the nonlinear digital world, which was mind-blowing. The fact that I can bring clips in and, and images in and do uh, moves on images, post moves on stuff, it was mind-blowing for the time period. Very advanced software, by the way, that uh, got kind of a shit rap. 
and ended up becoming what all the software is now. Fascinating. Anyway, um, so at the time I was like, I want to learn to cut something. And I ended up cutting together this piece out of a bunch of different photographs at the time, at the time, I can't, I can't believe I'm admitting this on air, but at the time I cut a bunch of photographs of Charlize Theron together. So there was all these images that I had grabbed from the internet and I wanted to add emotional context to these images. So I went and I found some music and because I was just doing it for friends, I really wasn't worried about copyright. So I ended up downloading a couple of tracks. I don't know if they were like Moby tracks or something. And through the process of this edit, I would lay down a track and try to cut stuff to it. And I'm like, well, this track's too long. It's like three minutes long. Um, it needs to be shorter. So then what do I do? Do I just grab uh, 15 seconds or 60 seconds in the beginning and then just cut to that and have it finish? Well, I'd like this song to have a beginning, middle, and end. How do I do that? So then I started to examine the wave and examine the way the song sounded. And I'm like, well, I like the very opening. And I like this little like emotional peak rise that happens in the center and then I have to close it out. So how do I cut these together to be just 15 seconds or 60 seconds? And so what I was teaching myself was how to re-edit music specific to the edit of the video. How to take the best emotional responses from songs and put it together. And I ended up cutting together this piece that was great. Everybody had such a great emotional reaction to it and it was just images. It was still images that I downloaded from the internet but everybody had such a strong emotional response to it. And I owe that emotional response to the song because I didn't shoot any of that footage. It was literally just photographs that I had done that with. And that song changed everything. And I learned after doing that project, um, I learned right off the bat that music is everything. Sound is everything. If I had just played my silent short films, you would have heard the crick, literally heard the crickets in the backyard. You would have seen people shuffling and trying to be interested. And you sort of get like that sympathy, like this is really great. You know what I'm talking about when you've shown stuff to people, the music changed everything. And I'm just going to say for the record, it was just family stuff. This wasn't for the public. I wasn't using someone else's track to go out and publicly raise funds. This was just me showing stuff to friends and family um, to just clear myself here. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, so music changed everything. So fast forward, fast forward to later in life when I know that lesson now. And now I'm dealing with clients. I'm dealing with projects and uh, with my personal projects, my stuff, my films, it's I don't have a problem approaching musicians and people that are learning and coming up and saying, hey, would you like to contribute to this? I'd like to work with you, give you the opportunity to do something with me, and then we can build something together and then I'll promote you and all that stuff. There's a fair exchange there, but I don't feel that way doing something for a client, for a commercial. If I'm literally making a product or if I'm making an ad to sell a warehouse full of products, I'm not gonna go to a musician a struggling musician, nonetheless, and say to them, hey, will you give me a track for free? Can I use this song in this fucking commercial? That's just wrong, right? So you have to pay people for their services. And one of the things that I notice uh, when I would do commercial stuff, and I know you guys all notice this too, because we all talk about it, uh, sound in music is the last thing any client thinks of 
any producer thinks of. Most producers don't think of it until the very last minute. And it's usually a line item, right? You get a budget from a client. You're trying to make sure that everything fits within that budget. I'm paying my crew. I'm renting all that expensive camera gear. I'm doing all that st- visual stuff on set that I've always dreamed of doing. And I need to have a little bit of money for the edit. The edit usually suffers, right? Because we front load the, 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 the beginning of it. We front load all the production. So then the edit's like, well, I need, a, I need this to survive. And then you go through and it's like, well, how much do we have for color grading? Well, barely anything. How much do we have for sound and music? I don't know, a couple hundred bucks, like 200 bucks, 300 bucks, right? Maybe if you're lucky, maybe a grand if you're lucky. (laughs) I can't go, I can't go to Moby and be like, yo, I got 300 bucks. What do you think? You know, I can't go to some of these really great musicians that I know and go, hey, I've got like a hundred bucks. You give me a track. What do you think? Right? You just can't. And so what you're forced to do at that point is look for stock music. And that is the most depressing thing because you go through a lot of the older stock websites, these sites that have been around since I got out of film school, and you just hunt through what I like to call the bargain bin, right? You're going through kind of like lame content, uh, stuff where the musicians aren't getting paid adequately. They're not being supported by this website at all. This website's just like, what do you have kicking around in your folders that you don't want to use for your own personal projects? Here, we'll throw it up and we'll see if we can sell it. That's what a lot of stock stuff always felt like. And so going through that, you've front-loaded your production with so much money to make those visuals look gorgeous, to make your stuff look phenomenal. And then you're stamping it with this trashy little chintzy track. And so then when you watch it, you're almost apologizing for it, right? You show it to your friends, you go, I got this really great stuff. I go, turn it up, let's see what it sounds like. You go, yeah, we had to get like a stock thing, right? I know you feel it, I've, <laughs> I've been there. And so when I found our new sponsor for the show. I'm completely upfront with you. Today's guest is a sponsor of the show. Um, when I found Jambox, uh, it blew my mind because what I heard on their website, I felt like I was going through Spotify. I really did. I felt like I was going through, depending upon what genre I was in, I felt like I was listening to top quality stuff from that genre. It felt very much like I was going through the catalog of a record label. And I was like, wow, the production on this stuff is really good. I'm emotionally feeling something every time I go through these tracks. Do it right now. You know, call, you know, call me out. Do it right now. If you think I'm just doing an episode to support a sponsor, head on over to jambox.io right now and click on their playlists. Go through their genres, right? Go through their electronic genre. Listen to it. And how many of these tracks would show up on a playlist on your Spotify setup, right? How many times, how many of you just listen to like chill on Spotify? Some of these tracks are better than those tracks. How is this possible? How does a stock music website have music that feels like the artist should be promoting and touring with. How does this make sense? That's what I wanted to know. That's why I wanted to have Au Fair 
uh, on the show today. Ophir from Jambox.io is joining us today, and we're going to talk about his history. We're going to talk about where he comes from. Uh, He gets into his DJ roots. He gets into uh, his roots as a struggling musician um, and talks about his discovery with uh, music licensing, talking to music supervisors in the movie industry, and then supplying uh, amazing tracks for Michael Bay trailers. Okay, let's be real about it. If you guys saw the new, if you guys went and saw the new Spider-Man, which we'll get into, if you went and saw that new Spider-Man movie, did you see the, the trailer for the new Michael Bay movie? Ambulance, right? The one with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in it. <laughs> Mysterio for you young kids. <laughs> um, they did a lot of music for that. Crazy, right? And by the way, hopefully I'll get into a whole episode on that because I got my hands on that Ambulance script before and that movie's crazy. <laughs> I'm very excited to see uh, the new Michael Bay movie. Very excited to see it. The kid in me, the 15 year old kid in me is like, yes, yes. Very excited. Anyway, um, so we're going to get into it today. We're going to talk about music. We're going to talk about music licensing. We're going to talk about uh, the business plan that uh, these guys have that not only creates great music, but supports the musicians that they work with, uh, provides them with all sorts of resources. They actually get together and uh, collaborate on album design and song track design uh, for their library, and they pay their musicians to do it. It's crazy, man. It really is. Um, so get yourselves ready and stick around to the end of the episode because last night I finally did it, finally got a chance to go see the new Spider-Man movie, and I've got some stuff to say about it. All right, so strap yourselves in, grab those noise-canceling headphones, crank them up, and get ready for the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. Fair. Thanks for being on the show, man. How are you, dude? All good, man. How's it going? It's going well. It's a little early for me here in Los Angeles today. I'm like, as you can hear with my voice, I am still recovering. I unfortunately got a strain of COVID over the holidays, so I'm at the back end of it at this point. Yeah, hopefully it wasn't too bad, right? Nah, what not wasn't. I mean, like I was very fortunate. It was kind of like a cold, a flu kind of thing. Uh, but being a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> it adds, uh, it actually adds some mystique to your voice. I like the lower baritone, you know, it kind of, I don't know, it does something. Yeah, dude. 
<laughs> I think a lot of times when singers are slightly sick, it actually makes their voice sound that much better. So, you know, <laughs> take that to the podcasting industry too. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, with asthma and stuff, I was never able to smoke cigarettes. So this is the next best thing. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show. Um, a lot of folks that have been listening to the show, the new season of the uh, podcast, uh, 2022, uh, I've announced that uh, we've partnered up. You guys are uh, one of the new sponsors of the show. And uh, as I've said before on this uh, podcast, I specifically like to work with sponsors that I believe in what they're doing and um, do high quality stuff and stuff that actually contributes and makes my work better. Um, and since working together, I've already gone through and pulled tracks from your site and, uh, I'm not allowed to talk about the piece on air yet, but it's really fucking cool. And the music that you guys have is really going to make it better than it was before. So awesome. And thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's amazing to hear, man. That's uh, I'm psyched. Yeah, dude. Well, let's get into it. Cause I like what I'd like from this episode is, uh, to sort of dig a little bit deeper and talk about you and talk about, you know, how you got into the world of music. Like what was your beginnings? How'd you get into the music business? Well, you know what, uh, I got, you know, if I'm going to span the whole journey, it started pretty young, um, you know, with playing an instrument. I was six years old. Um, I had an uncle who was actually, um, I was living in Israel at the time mm -hmm. and, uh, my uncle, um, was blind. His wife was blind and they were both musicians and actually wow. musicians that wrote songs that got like their well-known folk songs, right? They were played on the radio. They're kind of like the kind of song you kind of know, but you don't know who wrote it, you know? So he wrote <laughs> some of those songs and uh, he took me, I remember when I was six years old, to a music shop and helped me choose out an organ, uh, I remember at the time. <laughs> and uh I kind of hated it, I have to say. I wasn't into the organ at all, you know. So like a year into it, I was like, meh, this instrument sucks. It's not for me. Um, <laughs> and then I discovered the guitar, you know, started rocking out. And, and you know, um, I was very open-minded musically. Luckily, I had um, older friends that would expose me to music kind of mm -hmm. at the time. You know, they were kind of like roadies and some of them were getting oh, into cool. sound. And they just, you know, it, it was very broad. It was from, you know, like classic rock to jazz, uh, avant-garde soundtrack music. It, you know, it was all about record collecting yeah. and yeah. going out there and finding the hidden gems and going every week to the record store and just kind of just going through the bins and, and checking things out. And it was it was free. It was, you know, it was amazing. And I just loved the the fact that I never knew what I was going to get exposed to. Um, and I felt comfortable in that place, you know, and, yeah, yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, so my love for music kind of started pretty early and it, it was, it was pretty diverse and, um, you know, started, you know, writing some songs. I remember, um, I, I went to college a little bit later than the rest, you know, because uh, growing up in Israel, you have to do the whole military thing and that. So I started college when I was in my early 20s. And I remember I didn't connect with, you know, the younger people were like four years younger than I was. And that got me into like a headspace that uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going deep inside. I'm not connecting to my surrounding too much. And I started writing songs a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and got into producing those songs, like 
which was pretty early days and uh, learning more about studio equipment and recording and multi-tracking and that whole thing. Um, you know, so I got deeper and deeper into the technical side that led into other forms of music and the technical side led me to electronic music for a mm -hmm. period of time. And I was DJing for many years, like big raves and techno parties <laughs> um, in different parts of the world. I, you know, I would get flown out as a DJ. I was a resident DJ. I was living in New York at the time cool. in uh, quite a few New York nightclubs. Um, and, you know, just getting deeper and deeper into sound in general into quality of production and um, yeah, and just to explore both technical and, and musical avenues of, of music. And um, yeah, so those, those are, that's kind of like a, a yeah. little bit of a summary. Well, <clears throat> dude, it's a great summary. And, and, you know, I love when I've been fortunate enough to be in studios while people are recording and be through that whole process. I, for years I did, um, a whole series that I used to film for Bose called their Better Sound Sessions. And we would, you know, co collaborate with the studio recording technicians. And then I would also be filming in the same space. So it was really fascinating to look at the merging of tech and art, which was so interesting because there are two different sides, at least when I was in the studios, it's two different sides of of thought where you have these guys that are like incredibly specific about how they mic up drums, like what the room sounds like, where you're placing microphones, where you're positioning the musicians, whether or not the musician you can hear the musicians together or if they're uh, isolated, like that whole game. And then to have these musicians that sort of come in and they have stuff uh, sketched out or scratched on a notepad and they're just sort of bringing these raw emotions to this technology thing. It's just a, it's a wild little mix. It, it feels a lot like filmmaking um, and capturing movie stuff. It's the same level of tech meets emotion. It's, 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 it was a very exciting environment, to say the least. Absolutely. I, I fell in love with it. You know, like I felt that exact magic. You know, you enter the studio and it's like, I don't know, like the world disappears. Yeah. And you're in this kind of vacuum, a creative vacuum of sorts and and it's um you never know what's going to get captured too which is interesting you know sometimes yeah. you have these magic moments and other times it feels dead and you're not going anywhere you know and you just have to kind of let go come back to it maybe at a later time or something yeah yeah it's wild it's it's almost like uh you uh, bring together the formula the recipe for stuff i remember we were doing one specific recording and uh, this band had never played on a specific type of piano before. And so we brought in like specific instruments, uh, musicians that they hadn't worked before, set everything up, turned the microphones on, turned the recording system on, and then they just discovered something. And that in itself was amazing. You felt like you were just bringing in all this tech to capture a magical moment that may or may not happen. So it was, it was all, <laughs> it was all up to chance, you know, pretty cool yep. stuff. It's, it's experimental, which is cool. Yeah, man. Pretty cool stuff. Um, so then, uh, how'd you get into, uh, the movie industry? Cause you, the, the, the name of your original company was songs to your eyes, right? Was that, that's yep. how you guys got in? What, what's the deal exactly. with that? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I was, um, you know, so I had my New York days. We moved from New York, um, to LA, 
Uh, this is pre-kids, and um, I was just <laughs> producing music at the time. You know, I was yeah. uh, living on Formosa off of Sunset Boulevard and in a crappy <laughs> little apartment, you know, figuring out what the fuck I'm doing with my life. How am I making a buck? You know, my wife was pretty much supporting us at the time. And, yep. um, you know, and I was uh, working on my own music, doing mainly kind of like I was never a mainstream, like pop sounding guy. Um I, you know, fused acoustic music with electronic music because of the DJ days and all the electronic exposure. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started working producing other artists. So, you know, a vocalist or a singer would want, you know, me to produce their album for them. So I was doing a lot of that work and meeting people in LA, getting, you know, getting by. And I met this guy and he told me that he's a music supervisor mm -hmm. and I've never heard the term in my life before. I was like, what? <laughs> You're a what? Um, and he's like, yeah, I work with directors and, you know, I help them find music and then clear it for, for, for their films. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, play me some of your shit. And I played him some of my stuff and he's like, dope, man, this sounds actually something that could work for a film that I'm working on right now. Cool. Um, it was, uh, two pieces of instrumental music that I wrote cues and, um, yeah, and, and he comes back to me a couple of weeks later. He's like, yeah, the director loved it. We want to license them from you. And this was the first time um, that I was ever exposed to that transaction. Mm. Um, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, he's like, yeah, we have two grand for each track. And I was like, well, okay, well, take me a lot of, you know, downloads or at the time even CDs to sell to get to two grand, you know? Yeah, of course. And I was like, there's something here. And he came back to me, you know, maybe like a month and a half later again. And at that point, I was like, you know what? There's something here that I need to investigate more. Um, I need to understand this industry. I need to understand, you know, how many people like him there are. Um, what is the exact need, you know, what kind of music they're looking for. And I just started to dive into it. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I have my natural curiosity plus the necessity of earning a living, you know, fused <laughs> yeah. together. Um, yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't hurt that my wife was pregnant with our first uh, child at the time, you know, I was like. Oh, motivation uh, oh, at that point. Yeah, Motivation, yeah. hardcore motivation. <laughs> and, you know, things start to click. And I knew a lot of artists around me and I understood quickly, you know, the need. Mm -hmm. Um, who the players, the current players out there, there were, you know, at the time that I started, there were a few like, you know, like mega music libraries, they called themselves. Yes. Um, yes. You know, and there weren't that many, uh, but, and I felt like I, I went on their websites, which were, you know, really bad at the time, you know, I'm talking about like early 2000s, 2005 or something like sure, that. Sure, sure. Um, I know exactly who these guys are. I'm not going to mention names, but I've yep, been... I'm sure what, you do. When I was at NAB, they were continuously like handing exactly. out cards and all that. Exactly. And then you go to their website. And I used to work in music stores as a kid. And going to the website, I always felt like I was going to the bargain bin. Like the bargain yeah. CD bin. <laughs> the old <laughs> the bargain bin, stuff. man. Yeah, it's yeah. like, I went on there and I said, you know what? This music sounds like shit. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. what I said. I, I said, I am definitely not going to do that musically. So, because I, you know, I, up until that point, 
I was into labels, right? So mm-hmm. whatever types of music, I was into the like the coolest, usually underground labels, um, things that were, you know, that you couldn't necessarily hear on the radio mainly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and th- that's that was my mindset. I said, I want to open a cool label that licenses music. Uh, um, smart, dude. Very smart. Yeah. And and that's that was my motto is like, you know, over time you're like, okay, well, you understand certain styles of music are like bread and butter. They're needed. You know, they're not my favorite styles of music. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, if I'm going to do that, at least let's try to do that style well. Let's find, you know, someone that has maybe a slight twist on that thing that's kind of like, I don't know, it could even be like corporate sounding music, right? Sure. But some corporate music is better than other corporate music. Oh, for sure, dude. And what that, it's fascinating because I've talked about this briefly, but most of the time, whenever I do a project, let's say it's a corporate project, um, the last thing anybody thinks about is music. The last thing the producers think about, the last thing that the filmmakers think about, it's always an afterthought. And for a lot of uh, inexperienced editors, they're just like, all I need is a track and I'll lay a track underneath. What I try to explain to the folks that listen to the show and what I explain to my clients is the reason why you like my edits, the reason why this scene is so dynamic is because music plays a huge part in it. And it's not just getting a track, not just downloading a song that you like and just laying that song underneath the visuals. It's actually manipulating that song to work uh, emotionally for the scene that you're crafting. So oftentimes you'll hear if you watch a trailer, they'll actually deconstruct a song, get the stems for the song, deconstruct it, and continue to loop the build for as far as they possibly can while building that uh, motion to the to the most effective peak possible. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks don't realize the amount of work that goes into cutting the music for pieces, for films, and for that sort of thing. And when I was looking back in the day I was forced to go and deal with a lot of those, let's call them stock websites. So I, I was forced to go deal with them and I would hate it because you would shoot you would shoot these amazing visuals. You'd spend so much time crafting this stuff uh, and then you would sort through the bargain bin and y- you could just hear, there's something about like the bass being like f- sounding tinny, like uh, instead of playing it on a guitar, they played it on some cheap Casio keyboard. Like yep. all these elements just degrade your piece and degrade the visuals completely. Um, and so uh, stock music was a nightmare, consistently a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I do. I so, do, yeah. So, so the thing that I find that's interesting about your process so far is uh, – and it must come from the DJ roots, right? Because when you're a DJ, you're always looking for the coolest stuff that no one else has heard, right? You're always going yeah. through vinyl bins and looking for great loops and looking for really fascinating stuff that maybe got lost in time. And uh, so that ear for quality, that ear in interest and in collecting quality uh, is apparent when I go through uh, Jambox. It very much is apparent. You know what I mean? That's that's awesome. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, when you build a catalog, essentially it's done through in, you know, either one or more people's ears. That's what, you know, that's there's got to be a quality control point. 
Yeah. Um, someone has to say, this sounds like shit. Don't put it into the catalog or wow, this is amazing. People are definitely going to feel the vibe, you know? So that is, you know, that filter for Jambox and for songs to rise that have, you know, built up until now, that's pretty much my ears and my experience and what I, you know, like about sound. Let's even, you know, cause music, you know, I, I said like sometimes sound and music are two separate things. You know, there, there's quality of sound, which is something that um, it's a more maybe technical, mm-hmm. right? The more technical side of it. And then the musicality, um, that's more up to taste. So I can, I, you know, I do consider myself as somewhat of a taste maker, meaning that I think that my taste translates uh, beyond just me. And that's why, yeah. um, you know, my clients come to Jambox, right? So because they like the selection of music and they like the way that, um, yeah, whether it's the variety or even within a style of music, let's say um, synthwave, right? So let's Mm -hmm. take synthwave, right? So if I said, this is a synthwave track and it, you know, and it didn't sound like, it didn't compare to what, you know, that style of music should really sound like at its best, then it means that I didn't do my job right. But I think that I do understand the synthwave sound enough to know whether an artist that I'm working with is um, really credible or not. Yeah, yeah, no, totally, totally. And obviously you mentioned synthwave because that's a big part of our show. When I was going through your synthwave collections, I was first sort of expecting it to be like, okay, <clears throat> here's some artists that are like uh, imitating Synthwave, essentially. Right. Like sort of right. going through and they're like, okay, I downloaded a Synthwave synth pack and, you know, here are those strings that we've heard before. And I, if I just cram this thing out, then it's like a little Synthwave thing. And oftentimes with stock stuff, I feel like the musicians that are putting it together are like, look, I'm not making a ton of money on this thing. So I'm just going to cram it out real quick. And I'm, right. it's better for me to build a larger catalog of mediocre material and just throw it out there because chances are someone's going to pick up something and then I'll get paid something from it. Um, and the thing that I found interesting about like, uh, for instance, talks, I used them on that prior episode. I love him. I think that he's great. Like, I think he's great. Like he's if an I, unbelievable artist, that guy, I mean, seriously, he's, straight up legit and um yeah you know and he's not a jack of all trades Mm -hmm. you know he has a musical focus he does deviate left and right from synthwave you know um we've done other amazing sounding albums with tongs um you know that are maybe like he's a toronto-based artist this guy so he's really into this kind of like toronto trap r&b sound mm-hmm. um he's an amazing vocalist um so he sings on a lot of his own tracks and um he does really what like we did an old school hip-hop release with him and he, his old school beats i mean the selections of his snares and his kicks and just the way he plays around with his, his sounds he he stays with his in, within his comfort zones, which is what I like. He doesn't yeah. say, I can do it all. He's not going to write uh, like an orchestral album for us. And he won't even offer that to me because he knows what he's good at. Yeah. Well, what is your involvement with these guys when they're putting together an album? Do you talk to them ahead of time about like what you think they oh, should yeah. do? Oh, well, oh, how yeah. does I it mean, work? Walk me they, through it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, um, for quite 
some time now, years, we decided that we're not really looking to sign music that has been um, pre-created. Um, uh, so smart. we try to come up with concepts. And sometimes, you know, a lot of times we'll find artists that – uh, we've heard stuff that they wrote before. We like their sound. We reach out to them. We say, hey, we love what you do. We'd love to work with you. Um, you know, the way that and explain to them that the way that we work is we'll we'll usually brainstorm um, an idea for a release. It could be an EP, it could be a full length album, cool. um, but we'll come up with a concept together. Then we say, okay, let's, let's do one track together to make sure that um, we're all on the same page, right? Before we get too deep into the project, let's make sure that um, you're, you're understanding what we want from this release um, yeah, yeah. And, and that we're all happy with the results. Uh, we get into one track, you know, we might get some feedback going. So it's a, tr we really work on a track by track basis with artists. Um, after we define a concept, we come up with an upfront budget that we pay our artists to sit down and exclusively write music for us. Wow. Um, wow, dude. Yeah. So, you know, the, the Tongs tracks that you're hearing on our site, you're not going to find those tracks anywhere else they're exclusive they have been written for us that's crazy um you, you i would never ever think that a that a place that was quote not i'm not saying that you guys are but a place that falls into that stock music category would do something like this that's so fascinating and then you're paying the artist outright to do the music initially yep yeah, we we come up with a what's called a production budget. Um, that's a, a a fee that's paid to the artist to sit down and focus writing this project. Wow. Um, depending on the technical capabilities of the artist, too. I mean, if uh, some some artists are also really good engineers, mm -hmm. um, some are not. So depending on their you know, skill set um, will either will bring in a mixing engineer, a mastering engineer to finish out the project. So um, our goal at the end of the day is to make the music sound as good as we can possibly make it. So whatever we need to do along the whole, you know, chain of events from connecting with our artists to releasing the music, um, we kind of spot all those weak links throughout mm -hmm. the system and try to make sure that you know, we, we try not to fall anywhere. Um, you know, on some styles of music and artists, you know, maybe more orchestral, maybe we spoke about trailer music, right? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, trailer music has like th the sound capabilities of creating orchestras, for instance, has improved phenomenally over the past, you know, um, decade or so where... So you mean you mean digitally, right? Like digitally, yeah. yeah. Like you can you can make an orchestra sound again, depending on how what parts you're playing. Really, um, if you're keeping it within a certain zone of uh, certain movements, let's call it that way. You know, like longer movements of strings or brass, for instance, and not mm -hmm. like upfront, um, you know, quick, like. I don't know, string violin movements where you can kind of tell that it's fake. But if you're keeping it to certain movements within that style of music, you won't be able to tell if it's a real orchestra or not, mm -hmm. if it's done right. Right. So but sometimes let's say, you know, we're doing a project and we want to feature a cello solo. So, 
you know, the composer might write it digitally, but we might say, hey, it doesn't sound credible. You know, the whole piece sounds amazing, but this thing, this uh, cello solo brings it down. Mm. So let's bring in a live cellist to the project and make sure that we don't fall short there. Um, So that's also part of the process is, you know, helping composers, giving them external you know, assets, whether it's live musicians or mixing engineers or mastering engineers or whatever else they might need to make their project the best that it can be. That's dude. It's unheard of. Like, is there, is there another company in this work, in this space that's doing this sort of thing? You know, like the, the, the people that get it, I I don't know that there are other companies with the business model that Jambox has, by the way, with, you know, the subscription-based licensing and all that, that does it that way. They're more boutique kind of custom uh, companies that are niche. They cater yeah. only to trailers, for instance. Right. 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 So they want to maintain their product level so high because it's such a competitive industry that, yeah, they will do that. But, but they don't do what Jambox does. They won't offer their cues um, for the price point that we're able to offer, you know, the music on Jambox. So, you know, it's uh, everyone has their unique angle, right? So, and that's sure. one of ours. Well, dude, it's such a great angle from my perspective, from the perspective of a filmmaker, um, <clears throat> because unless I'm doing, and there are projects, like I'll do films and I'll do projects and I'm friends with musicians and I will hire musicians directly to compose things or work with composers on films. That makes sense. But a majority of the work that we do is smaller things, is like uh, commercials, or it's the podcast, or it's like there's a ton of people that listen to the show that do YouTube channels and all that stuff. And you can just hear, uh, if you're if you're playing the game legitimately and you want your stuff to stay up there and not get pulled down because you're, you're, you're dealing with copyright infringement, uh, you can just hear the schlock, like the really crappy stock music stuff that happens and there's almost a level of embarrassment i know as a filmmaker a lot of my peers when i got started we would always just sort of like cringe when we showed a commercial or if we showed something and go like yeah i know we only had like you know like 500 bucks we had to go to some stock website for this i know you're like you're like apologizing for your own project you know (laughs) because of the music and you don't want to do that yeah man so like I think that was the most interesting thing because when we first started talking, I was like, okay, stock music website. Like I, I hadn't gone through your stuff <laughs> and there's the cynicism in me where I'm like, okay, let's go take a look at this. And I was like, whoa, what the fuck is going on here, man? Um, nice. And that that's why I wanted to talk to you about it because it makes sense that you guys are, are, are so hyper-focused and your analogy of being a label makes sense to me um, because the music sounds that way. And those of you listening... Yes, Jambox is a sponsor of the show. Yes, of course, I'm going to be excited about it. But more importantly, as you know me in the past, like it's it's eye-opening and it's game-changing. It really is. And being a creator that can put the same quality of human-created, human-curated music behind all that other stuff that I've spent years training myself how to do, years convincing clients that I'm the guy to do something like this and to be able to go to clients. For instance, right now, we're in the process of talking to a client that that reached out to us and they're like, hey, look, we only have a certain amount of money to do this edit. Uh, we want you to use one of these stock music websites and uh, find a track there and put it together. 
it's depressing. You, like you get that email and you just go like, oh, why am I doing this fucking job? <laughs> like immediately, <laughs> immediately. And so then I write back to them and I'm like, well, guys, I've got to deal with this other website that has better fucking music. And, and it's the same kind of thing where the clients go, well, what's the deal? It's just another stock music website. We have a bunch of other stock music website stuff. And so then I send them tracks and I'm like, what do you think of this track? <laughs> like, if you had a, your option between this track and this track, which one stands out to you? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, this one. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> How about you let me choose? <laughs> um, so it's nice to have that option at this level, you know, and I would use, like, like I'm going to play a bunch of Tonk stuff over the course of the next couple of months because I, I fucking really dig his shit. Um, but I would use any of this stuff. I know uh, my girlfriend who also directs, we, we were going through the, um, uh, oh my God, the opera selection that you guys have. Jesus, uh -huh. man. Like, that's legit. legit. No, it's legit. It's uh, because we have a deal that we collaborate, you know, with an Italian label that made their catalog available to us to Jambox, for instance. And that's all stuff that's recorded, you know, with live orchestra. It's not like a guy on a synthesizer writing an <laughs> opera piece. It's, you know, it's a, like a 90-piece orchestra recording with an, uh, an Italian opera singer. And, you know, so that's on the site. And similar with other styles of music, you know, we have deals with uh, world music labels like Brazilian music. You know, we have a deal with the label there that, you know, um, make their roster of artists available to our clients through Jambox. And um, other than us um, developing our own content, I think that um, a, a unique proposition for, for our customers is also, you know, the fact that we're going out there and we're trying to find hard to you know hard to get music in stock the in the stock music world yeah um and and keep it authentic yeah yeah no it makes i mean because i never thought i would be getting uh that quality of opera music through a stock music website and i'm like i didn't even think this was an option and so when you yeah. as a creator when you're like okay i have this idea maybe it'd be really cool if we were to go like you know, Ridley Scott, Hannibal sort of stuff like uh, opera sound. You go, well, yeah, but we have a stock music budget. So budget, let's, yeah. th let's throw that fucking idea right out the window. And uh, when I was going through your website, I was like, oh, wow, wow. Actually, this opens <laughs> this up. This really does <laughs> open this up to us. Um, it's really cool, man. Well, let's let's dig a little bit further into I'm curious about your your day's DJing and sort of going through vinyls and stuff like that. Was there a specific genre that surprised you? Did you stumble across your searches and finds? Did you stumble across a genre that you didn't know anything about that really blew your mind and influenced you? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I got stuck for uh, quite a while. I remember I, this was my early days in LA and um, I had a French neighbor, I remember, and I'm like the apartment over him. <laughs> and I'm hearing like this, like four to the floor kick. Um, and this is this is late 90s. All right. Yep. So this is late 90s. Um, and he's like and I go downstairs and I'm like, dude, what the hell are you playing? He's like, yeah, this is the next shit. This is this is trance music. Oh. I was like, what's OK? I was like, what's trance music? And again, at the time, I've never heard it before. Um and he started to, you know, show me at the time he had it on DAT. 
wow. tapes. Wow. Right? Wow. wow. <laughs> he was like, yeah, I'm getting these dat tapes directly from the DJs when they come to LA and play parties here. Um, and usually these were desert parties, right? There was a, an organization, I think they were called um, Moon Lab or Moon... Moon Tribe, Moon Tribe. Okay. Um, yeah, Moon Tribe. And these guys, every month, they would have an event somewhere They were out in the desert around L.A. What? Um, <laughs> yeah. And it was a gathering of usually like between 500 to 1,000 people out in the middle of nowhere. They would set up like full amazing sound systems. The quality of sound was phenomenal. Really? Um, out in the desert, the quality of sound was phenomenal? Out in the desert, they would find these places that created natural amphitheaters, like surrounded by hills, and the sound would bounce back oh, off fantastic. those hills in open air. I was like, oh my God, this is blowing my mind. Like, I was literally <laughs> blown away. And, it, you know, and people would be dancing all night. It was, I don't know, it was a trip. It was a, it was a period of time. But the, for me, what got me was the sound and um, this kind of like tribal feeling about it. Um, yeah, yeah. And the fact that they flew DJs from all over the world and each week, each month was a diff slightly different flavor on that style of music. Some of it would be more percussive based and much darker and deeper, like mm. German techno style you know mm -hmm. from the whole there some of it would be i don't know faster and more uplifting different styles of music and anyway that that got me that kind of got me into that style of music i started making that style of music i started um connecting with some of the other djs that i met at these events and um i dove really deep for quite a few years into that <laughs> style of music i had a I actually ended up opening a business um, that imported vinyl from Europe, from Japan, from other countries around the world, cool. and I would sell it to to DJ stores all over the U.S. Like wow. you know, that sold that style of music. So I was uh, essentially like a record, a vinyl distributor. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. but. Um, yeah, I mean, and that, you know, that led to, um, at the time, I was also into, um, I don't know if you know who um, uh, Bruno Gez was? No. Um, so, you know, um, I'm not sure if Jason Bentley still has a show on KCRW or not, but he was a DJ on KCRW for a while. And those two had um, kind of like, uh, they had this kind of down-tempo trip-hop fused with jazz and like cool. acid jazz and this whole kind of mishmash of down-tempo electronic fused styles of music. And they had this uh, show on KCRW at midnight. And that was also one of my favorite places to discover new music. And they, they connected me. I remember just listening to their show. I got exposed to unbelievable artists, like really trippy shit uh, in that style of music. So... Those are some memories, you know, from the early days um, yeah, dude. that I, I would say, you know, really it, it was something about the way that music was produced and the sound of that music that really got me excited. And um, well, what what yeah. sound, what sound usually draws you in? Is it like the low end? Is it the bass stuff? Is there like a specific Definitely tone? low end. Low end is a big, big factor. Um, yeah. It's a big factor across genres of music, too. I mean, you'll take trailer music or synthwave or hip hop or other forms of electronic music. I mean, low end plays a huge factor. And when it's done right, it it something in those frequencies man they they just you know they trip you out i mean they just draw you in and they kind of keep you really centered and and 
paying attention to what's going on. And um, I love low end. Yeah. Low it's, it's, a- it's wild. The emotional context that comes with different frequencies, which is fascinating. And, you know, the understanding of that and the manipulation of that, which is really interesting and, and what certain low end frequencies or what frequencies in general will trigger uh, like a natural, like uncontrollable emotional response from you, especially with trailers, because that's essentially what they're trying to do is get your adrenaline pumping as quickly as they possibly can with this stuff, you know? Absolutely. I mean, we do a lot of custom work for trailers these days. And um, my my partner in that, um, he is a master of low end, this guy. I mean, he <laughs> we, we've done recently a lot of remixes of well-known, uh, mainly hip-hop trap songs. Take the, you know, take the acapellas and the vocals and write something that's completely different than the original version of the song with huge drums, big low end, a lot of analog synthesis goes into it. Um, mm. You know, and um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely people that know how to manipulate low end um, at the top level, I think in general are way more successful than those that don't. Yeah. In many styles of music, it's a really crucial part of the music. And some people don't know how to control those frequencies. Maybe they don't have the right room, uh, the right speakers, or just the, you know, engineering knowledge. But those that do it, I think th- that capability in itself opens a lot of opportunities for musicians having that knowledge. Oh, that's fascinating. That makes a lot of sense because you can tell. You can tell, like, even, you know, like, I got deep into the synthwave scene a few years ago, and I just enjoyed it. I think my pull into that world, strangely, actually, I heard Justice for the first time years ago, and then I fell into that synthwave world through Justice, even though they're not synthwave. I ended up falling in that way and, and going through it. And the ones that I really gravitate towards, like bands like Power Glove or... Uh, Carpenter Brute, they know what the fuck they're doing with low end. They really do. Oh yeah, and it you could you could feel it when you hear it. And you're like, ah, oh, this. It just feels more powerful. It feels more expensive to a certain extent. It feels like they exactly. spend more time with it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's just more polished. I mean, yeah, g- musicians that are either good engineers or have access to good engineers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that uh, they're just. It just makes their music that much better. It's the way it sounds is a, it's a, it's a huge component of the whole thing. So you've been uh, supplying music and working on uh, movie trailers for a little while right now. Is there any trailers in specific that you're allowed to? Are you allowed to talk about any of the stuff that you worked on? Or yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, I think the last big one that finished is a Michael Bay uh, movie called Ambulance. I just saw that trailer uh, last night in the theater, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. So um, the the first trailer. I'm not sure if they've released uh, subsequent ones, but the first trailer for that movie, um, together with the trailer house that cut it, um, we worked hand in hand with them and wrote quite a few custom pieces that ended up going to that trailer. Mm-hmm. Um, same same goes for. Um, um, this is a, this is actually a little bit older, but also a Ryan Reynolds movie that was on Netflix called um, um, Six Underground. Oh yeah, I don't yeah, know if, yep, yep. So we did uh, that uh, trailer custom. 
Um, we're working on quite a few right now. Um, well, I mean, you're working with Michael Bade. I mean, like his, if there's something that I can give his movies credit for, it's his soundscape and his sound design. And it's sonically, his movies are just astounding to yeah, be a part uh, of. And your first yeah. introduction to those movies are these trailers. And I, I just saw, like, I, I went and I saw the new Spider-Man finally last night and they had the ambulance movie trailer for it and i was just like man thank god we're back into the late 90s early 2000s michael bay movies <laughs> <laughs> so it was like all right cool man very cool um yeah so that's cool man that's i mean yeah. there's something to be said about the fact that you know your knowledge and the the dudes that you work with the knowledge that you guys have being used at at the top end of the spectrum at this point because yeah yeah no i mean uh, and it's across studios too i mean we did uh, recently snake eyes this kind of uh, yep. another action movie that got was was uh, on the big screen um, as well as also just licensing i mean we did a project called swan song with apple mm -hmm. uh, apple movies um, you know they're we're, we're very active. Uh, we're working on a few projects custom right now, um, you know, that I can't mention just yet, but sure. hopefully I'll be able to, you know, kind of clue you in on it and send you a link a little bit later. But nice. yeah, it's, uh, it's very challenging. It, I love the challenge of those because um, you kind of get sent a project and they're like, they keep it fairly open-ended for us. They're like, listen, we want this song um, in the trailer we this is the style of movie do your thing that's cool it's, a lot of times it's just that they, they know the people that we work with have used us before mostly they understand our capabilities they understand our sound when they come to us with these styles of remixes um and and they're like just do your thing then you know we'll usually send them an initial version um, sometimes they'll love it straight out. Other times, you know, we'll go through a few revisions. Um, maybe they want to hit certain lyrics from the song. They're like, oh, let's, you know, you use these lyrics. We want to also include these and we can swap these out. So, um, maybe they want to create a different hook mm -hmm. than we did. Um, you know, so it really, it's, it's project dependent, but it's, it's, uh, I love it. You know, you feel like you're working at the highest level when you're working with trailers, Yeah, which is what, what I like. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole wonderful industry. One of the guys I went to film school with ended up working for one of the biggest trailer cutting houses in uh, New York for years. Um, and I, I, I've always loved cutting trailers myself. It's, it's so much fun to, uh, take the entire film, an entirety of like a long project and try to distill it down to specific emotions and feed those emotions to an audience in such an interesting way. And the thing that I find irritating, I think, about a lot of trailers is that someone does it successfully. I remember when I think a trailer that sort of changed my the way I look at fi film trailers was when they remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was uh -huh. also a Michael Bay production. Um, and the way that they started to work with sound effects and they were using sound effects almost as an instrument in the sonic piece that was that trailer. And at that time, that was the flash from uh, Texas Chainsaw, that whining flashbulb sound. Um, yep. And then that became such a fucking thing where everybody was doing that. And these days it feels like 
A24 got real smart about how they were doing their trailers and they went back to the same kind of vibe where it was like, take a sound effect for the movie and make some sort of percussive beat out of that sound effect. And now it feels like everybody is doing, doing the A24 knocking on walls. Totally. <laughs> you know, sound thing. Uh, are you are you hearing anything that's coming? Do you, do, can you anticipate another trend that's going to be coming for trailers? Or have you seen that yet? It's, or yeah, well, I, I think that the the trend we're in right now is taking well known songs and readapting them for trailers. Mm -hmm. um, that has been, I you know, we get more and more requests um, where they want. And I think it's mainly marketing driven. You know, they want something recognizable yeah, and yeah. Uh, they feel it'll sell the movie better. Um, and it, it's, it, I, I think it's actually more musical than just putting some sound effects and percussion together. I like it. You know, I actually enjoy that side of it. You know, you never know what song they're going to use for what movie, but... Um, and they differ too, you know, depending on the film. If it's an action film, they're going to go with something more beat-driven, mm -hmm. uh, more aggressive. But then, you know, films that are either period pieces or um, have an emotional component to them, you know, they'll they'll merge these songs with beautiful, lush orchestral arrangements. Or um, and it's 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 a challenge. It's uh, and, and I like it from a musical perspective. Um, it just feels a little bit richer than than like you said, just the sound design stuff. Yeah, I just saw the trailer for uh, the new um, the new Moon movie where the moon's crashing into the planet. What's his name directed that? Who did all of the uh, end of the world movies there? Um, <laughs> and what the fuck's his name? I can't remember. He did Godzilla. He did all those movies. Oh, okay. Oh I God, it's right at the edge of my tongue. Though. He did. He did Independence Day. <clears throat> Oh God, it's right there. And I know the audience is like, Mike, this is who it is. Um, <laughs> but I just heard his trailer last night too. It was in the lineup and they took like Creedence Clearwater, Bad Moon Rising and slammed that with like giant orchestral, almost uh, like Viking drum sounds. It was really uh -huh. weird and sonically fascinating. It was interesting to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a lot of that now. Um yeah, it's, it's a little, you know, it's hard to anticipate exact trends, I think that, uh, but I, I definitely, you know, I definitely uh, know that this is what we're in, the cycle that we're in right now is like readaptation of songs. It makes sense. I mean, like everybody, there, it really is the marketing campaign stuff, because a lot of these, like that movie's fighting with with fucking spider-man where like yeah. they have like every you know celebrity on screen that they possibly could fit on screens and everybody's like oh great and this is a brand that we know it's the dude wearing the spider-man outfit okay oh wow there's multiple okay interesting so then now they have uh an original idea uh still framed in the end of the world but they're like okay so there's a couple of names on screen Let's get that Creedence Clearwater track. It <laughs> makes sense. It totally yeah, sense. it'll help put seats in the theater. You know, hopefully for them. Um, it's yeah, like it's they're they're in a competitive industry, just like um, most other industries. You know, they got to have an edge. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, dude, this has been fascinating. It's been like all right. So it makes sense to me why the quality of stuff that you guys are doing over at Jambox is so great because of this, because of your mindset, because of how you're putting things together. Um, and 
for those listening to the show that are interested, do right now head on over to jambox.io. I'm telling you, I've had sponsors on the show in the past. This is the sponsor that is going to immediately change the quality of your work instantly. If you go and and even if you sign up for a subscription plan or you look for single song prices, just browse their stuff. And even if you don't have a project right now, go browse their stuff so that it will open your eyes to what is available to you. So then if you're uh, putting together a quote, if you're putting together a bid, if you're putting together an idea, you know what is accessible to you at what price range. And you guys are very affordable. You guys are very affordable for what you're giving away to folks. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, we don't want that to be a hurdle. You know, I think that um, the idea is to, to have as many people enjoy this as possible, right? And um, yeah, you know, if, if the platform's been built, it's up and, and running, everything's working great. And I think that, uh, yeah, now it's just about communicating it out there and let people enjoy it, you know? Well, I think that we can live well with those price points, and I think that we can also help creators everywhere. So it's it's a it's a good win win for everybody. Like I said, if you're listening to the show, head on over there right now. They have a bunch of really great subscription plans, which are great. And we didn't even get into it, but um, I've got the unlimited commercial plan, which also gives me access to your sound effects, which is yep. really great. Uh, because I try to build my own sound effects library with every project that I do, but I'm always missing something, especially if you're trying to build stuff from scratch and you're like, oh, I need this very specific. And so then you're doing that long hunt of like, where do I find this thing? Do I have to go out and record this thing? Um, so it's great to have another library and access to another library. And dude, for like $19.99 a month, that's nothing. <laughs> for commercial stuff, that's great, dude. So... Um, there are a bunch of really great plans up there, uh, for everybody and anything you need, you can individually license tracks if you just want to go and find a song. Um, but if you are someone that is doing what we do on the show, which is, you know, how we uh, working tirelessly for you for free, <laughs> you know, doing YouTube stuff. Um, there is a creator, uh, subscription, which is really great for $9.99 a month. Um, which gives you access to all the music, unlimited downloads, uh, and licensing for your YouTube and uh, personal projects, and your student projects, and all that stuff. And mentioning students again, uh, you guys are smart by having a, a student subscription plan for six bucks a month. Um, so I know a lot of you, uh, you know, film students that are indebting yourself to student loans right now. <laughs> uh, there's a really good deal out there to raise the quality of project for you. So maybe you'll get a better grade when you turn in your project with a better song. So um, check them out. Go to jambox.io. Um, oh, fair. It's been great to have you on the show, man. It's it's cool to know you. I'm excited to be partnered up with you on this stuff for this year. So um, thanks for chatting with us, man. Awesome, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
there it is, right? Pretty cool, right? Uh, I'm fascinated with uh, like how Fair and Jambox they they do their shit, man. Um, I can't say enough great things about it. And I know you're like, Mike. I know you keep saying how cool it is. I'm telling you, I don't know how else to say this. I'm very excited about these guys as a sponsor because it's going to change your work. It will, and it's affordable. I know a lot of you have come back to me and said, look, I love these other companies. I just can't afford to buy a new computer right now. And, uh, you know, it would be nice if you guys had something that was affordable that can directly affect our work. Well, here you go, man. This is it. This is going to do it. Um, and so, uh, and by the way, all the music that you've heard through the show has been from Jambox. Okay. Anyway, I promised at the beginning of the show that I'd talk about uh, the new Spider-Man movie. Hold on a second. You should be prepared, Michael. Uh, let's see here. This movie has done fucking ridiculous. Uh, so I went and I saw uh, the new Spider-Man No Way Home. So let me give you a little context here. One of the first comic books that I got when my mom realized that I was <laughs> illiterate and that I wasn't reading books and she wanted me to read something and she went to, I think she got it at a drugstore, went to a drugstore uh, and grabbed a handful of comic books and tossed them down in front of me. Uh, two of the books in that pile were for Amazing Spider-Man and it was the origins of Venom, believe it or not. So it was like Eric Larson was the artist, was right after... Uh, Todd McFarlane left and started the actual Spider-Man book instead of the Amazing Spider-Man, so it was Spider-Man. Um, and so I got into it. I started to read them. Uh, the art in those books were amazing. Uh, the world was amazing. And I connected immediately with Peter Parker. Um, and Peter at that time was after high school. It was post-high school. He was, uh, I think he was going to college. He was working as a freelance photographer strange, right? So he's working as a freelance photographer. He was dating Mary Jane and they had such a, a wonderful relationship in this run of books that I first got into. And it's very odd. It was like kind of my introduction to what I thought a, a healthy relationship was when I was reading these comic books. Uh, talk about an influence on a child, right? Um, and uh, I really fell in love with it. And this was a time period where they were doing some mega, mega fucking hero crossovers. They had like uh, multiple uh, page spread outs of, uh, or, or covers that would fold out with like the Hulk and the Punisher and Nova, like all these characters uh, teaming up with Spider-Man to fight um, the Sinister Six, which was like Dr. Octavius, Electro, all these folks. Um, great books. Love those books. Uh, and I read Spider-Man for a long, long, long time. Um, and then Marvel started to do its thing, right? Marvel was uh, running into financial problems. Uh, There's a big reason why Marvel sold off a lot of its properties to different studios, movie studios. That's why Fox got their hands on the X-Men. That's why Sony got their hands on Spider-Man. Because uh, Marvel was in trouble for quite some time, and they were consistently trying to get new fans to pick up their books. And there hit this point with a lot of the artists sort of jumping ship and going to Image, 
But the success of the start of X-Men with Jim Lee, X-Men 1, the blue, the blue team books, and then they had the Uncanny X-Men Gold team books, and Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane, those were new books. They were number one issues. And those books did really well for them. And they hit a point with Marvel where they decided that they were just going to start rebooting every year. And I've talked about this on other episodes with uh, other comic book artists where they just were like, hey, guess what? Number one, again, number one again. And I used to, I kind of fell out of love with it because I'm the thing I loved about uh, these heroes was that there was a whole back catalog. Like when I went into the comic book store and picked up the new issue off the shelf, I would also then go through the bins of older issues and, and work my way backwards. Because I think I jumped in at like 365 or whatever that number was. And I would slowly work my way back in time to read about these books. And when the books got too old or too expensive, they were collected editions, trades that came out that you could read on and learn about all these old heroes. Well, once they started to change that stuff, I got like, ah, okay, all right. And then there hit a point with the comics where they started to get into like these multiple dimensions and multiple streams. And some of it was interesting, but there was the cynical side of me that was like, okay, so you guys are just trying to hit different demos now, right? That's what you're trying to do. Instead of writing a new superhero that uh, showcases, um, you know, uh, a strong uh, teenage girl, uh, why not make Wolverine a girl? right? Why not do that? Or why not uh, do Miles Morales for Spider-Man? And I'm not saying that the Miles stories are great. I just wish that Miles was a whole different hero. I wish he was something that was brand new and very customized to him. And so when I was reading those books, it was, I was very cynical about it, where it was like, oh, come on, man. It just felt like they were trying to hit a, sell more books. Let's be honest about it. So I read these and and really, it comes down to the writers that they hire within the restrictions that they have of that business plan that they're putting together that come in and write really great stories. And I thought a lot of the Miles Morales stuff was really interesting. I thought a lot of the Ultimate Avengers, which a lot of the movies are kind of based on, which was like an alternate reality Avengers, like what if in a different world, this is what it was. Um, I, th I thought the stories were kind of cool and sometimes a little bit darker and interesting, which was fun. But there was still a big piece of me that was like, God damn it. Why can't we write new heroes that are interesting? And then, uh, you know, you look at the numbers and you look at the business of it and you go, well, why as an audience do we not respond to stuff that is new and interesting? Is it too scary for us? Because the books that they were attempting to do uh, that were new weren't really doing well for them. And so then you go, okay, all right. Then Disney bought uh, Marvel. And I remember when Disney first bought Marvel, and I'm like, I hope they don't fuck with the books. Like, please don't fuck with the books. Just play with the movies. Just play with the movies. And for about a year, it didn't feel like they were messing with the books. But then you started to see things happen. Like, you know, the Fantastic Four was suddenly killed because they didn't own the movie property or you know, like all these different things cynically started to happen in the books. And I get it. I'm old. I'm not supposed to be the demo, right? I shouldn't be uh, reading comic books anymore, right? I should be, you know, an adult, you know, reading like, you know, novels. 
<laughs> so they're making these books for kids. I get it. And there's a level of, there's a level of that where they're like, look, we don't care what you think. We're just going to reboot it for the young kids that are come in. Cause they're going to be the ones that buy the comic books. And yes, Mike, you are a 40 year old that still reads books. And there is a big group of, of you out there, but you're not the main demo for us. Uh, we got to sell to kids. Kids have uh, not only the best disposable income, the most susceptible to marketing, um, but that's what we're doing. I talk about a very cynical rant from Michael here. Um, so I felt that way with comics for a little while. And I think that's kind of why I jumped to image again. And I started to read image books and the, the, the very limited runs or the high quality runs that were still owned by the creators and the creators themselves still own the properties and put them out, reading books like Low, reading books like The Walking Dead, um, really getting into that stuff, uh, any of Mark Millar's stuff. Um, and uh, every once in a while, you know, the kid in me was still like, what's going on with my favorite heroes? You know, and it's like, we're killing Wolverine death of Wolverine and all this stuff. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I, at this point I started to chase around the artist and the writers more than anything else. Right. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff that they're doing with X-Men right now in the books, which I think are fun. Um, and they're really sort of reinventing that. And it feels like uh, they're actually catering more to people that are interested in the mythology of everything, which is fun. And I think that's what it comes down to with the long run of it, right? Is that it feels like they're just convoluting the mythology. And as I sort of go through periods of the Spider-Man book specifically, I'm like, eh, this is where they were just trying to get more people to read the book. It, it, how does this fit into the mythos of this character? And when you're breaking this character up and you're rebooting this character and you're changing things in the multiple universes, it's hard to stick with one thread with this character, right? So this was an issue I had with the comics. Then uh, we get into the movies. I think that the first run of Spider-Man um, with uh, that uh, Sam Raimi did is phenomenal. I think that Spider-Man 2 uh, with uh, Doc Octopus um, is amazing. I think that movie is the peak of uh, Spider-Man movies. I think it's like one of the peaks of Sam Raimi's career. I uh, love that movie. And uh, Tobey Maguire is great in it. I never really understood why he, you know, shot webs out of his hands and not out of like web shooters. There must have been some reason for that. Um, but I liked it. And then they rushed the, the, the second one and then it sort of all fell apart. Um, then they did the series, the amazing Spider-Man series stuff with Andrew Garfield. I thought he was a cool casting choice, but the movies were weird. I don't even know who directed those. The movies were just felt strange. They bordered being graphic enough to be a comic book movie, but then there was a bunch of reality stuff and then their creature designs, like the design of Electro in that, which is lame and weird and strange, right? But whatever. Um, and then uh, Marvel Universe happens and the uh, interesting bit of Disney sort of acquiring everything that they needed, you know, getting the buying from Fox, getting the X-Men back and and doing all that. And then there was this one outlier, you know, Sony was like, fuck you, we're not gonna, <laughs> we're not gonna release Spider-Man, you know? And so you go, oh, all right. Well, knowing what they were doing in the books at that time where they were killing off the Fantastic Four because they didn't have the rights to the Fantastic Four, they didn't have the rights to anything. Uh, and they, it just felt cynical where it's like, why are we gonna put out comics to promote heroes 
for a property that is owned by a different studio. That's what it felt like, right? Um, so then you just assume that Spider-Man wasn't going to be part of the Marvel Universe. Well, something happened. Some small miracle happened. And uh, a lot of it comes down to like the amazing producer that uh, Kevin Feige is. Um, but uh, Spider-Man ended up in the Avengers. And you're like, what? And then uh, the Spider-Man movies and Sony's reflected that. And you're like, oh, this is fascinating. Okay, this is kind of interesting. Um, they picked a younger Spider-Man, very younger version of him, obviously for the kids. And it it didn't really occur to me that it, how much it was for the kids until I went and saw it in the theater last night. And they were all kids. Like it was kids. Kids, kids, kids. Just screaming. Spider-Man, like kids. So that's what these movies, that's what these movies are made for, is kids. Um, and it's hard to swallow being an old kid, you know? And so then uh, they make the new version of it, which I'm having a lot of trouble connecting with as an adult uh, because he's so young as a Spider-Man. And then there's this piece of me that's like, okay, they have to hit all sorts of different demos. So they're doing a lot of things for that. Um, but he's good. Like, he's really good. Tom Holland's a really great Spider-Man. Like, he really is. Uh, he's an incredibly emotional actor, very talented actor. Um, and they've handed him great, great scenes. You know, the death scene in uh, the Avengers movie. Come on. You know? And he's like the, the crying Spider-Man. He's the most tearful Spider-Man out of the bunch of them. And so... I liked it, you know? I, I mean, I, I thought that the best movies that Marvel's done are the Avengers Endgame movies. Um, and those were really phenomenal. And I still think that the first uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is amazing. Um, and there's a lot of trash out there, you know? Um, and then they're trying to tie in all these things, which is in itself quite an interesting feat, you know, tying in all these TV series. I may not like the series. I didn't really like WandaVision. I thought that was kind of lame. Um, but um, generally the stuff that they do for movies, I dig. And uh, so we went and saw the new Spider-Man last night. And with all the marketing and stuff, it's like, okay, obviously they're doing the same thing that they've done in the comic books with the success of the animated Spider-Man movie um with the multiple spider-man and of course they're going to try to do this for the feature so i kind of went in there very cynically to see it and uh started this film and a it's incredibly entertaining it's very fast um it it doesn't surprise me at all that this is incredibly successful but i was like okay so they're just gonna pull these fucking characters in and they're just gonna have cameos um but they did a really interesting thing with them they brought in a lot of these villains, some of the best villains from the series. They actually did better work with Green Goblin than the original film did. He felt meaner and nastier in this than he ever has on screen. And I thought that was really cool. Um, I liked the dimension that they gave Doc Ock. I thought that was interesting. Um, they <laughs> immediately repaired Electro. <laughs> like immediately repaired him, which I thought was really great. And... At this point, I'm going to do spoilers. So uh, if you guys haven't seen the movie yet, you don't want the spoilers, thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye. Uh, but for those of you who have seen the movie, let's continue. Uh, so then when uh, Tobey Maguire shows up 
and Andrew Garfield shows up. I thought both the reveals were fucking great. I thought what they added to Spider-Man as a character, as a hero, was really cool. I thought how they were there to help Tom Holland get through what he was going through was really cool. And um, the movie is very depressing. For a kids' movie, it's fucking brutal. Like, it's very, very depressing. And the end of it is brutal. God damn, it's vicious. Um, so I thought it was really cool. And I walked out of there going like, that was a really great movie. But then there's the cynical side of me that was like, it was a very smart fucking movie, man. Right? Like, examine it. Because they were kind of at the end of their deal, right? Am I wrong about this? They were kind of at the end of the deal with Disney and Sony and they were trying to figure it all out and they had made a deal to do a certain amount of films together. And so when they were writing this piece, you can see them writing it in such a way where like if they had to walk away from each other, they can do whatever they want at Sony still, which is interesting. And then it's also fascinating uh, what Marvel's doing. They're so smart about it where they're like, hey, Let's write a bit that has to do with Doctor Strange because of them we're doing a Doctor Strange movie, <laughs> which is also pretty smart of them to do. Um, and then the genius of bringing back these other characters, because Toby, Toby McGuire is amazing. It's great to see him on screen again. It's great to see him as that character again. And then Andrew Garfield has always wanted a chance. It seems like he's always wanted a chance to redeem himself for those movies and so him on screen being very tearful and the, co the comedic element and kind of ashamed of who his character is um, was fascinating to, to just say like, I'm sorry for the movies, you know, and I, I could have been a better Spider-Man and that was interesting to watch. And by the time you're done with it, the genius of how they wrote this piece is that they can do another Spider-Man with Tom Holland and do that whole bit. They can also do another Spider-Man with Tony McGuire. They could do another Spider-Man with Andrew Garfield. And that's the thing about this multiple universe thing that you look at it as a marketing ploy and you're like, Jesus Christ. Because they do such a good job of like hitting all the demos, right? Where's the black Spider-Man? He says in it. Well, we'll get you one, you know? You know, uh, where's our Asian Doctor Strange? We'll get you one. You know what I mean? So it hits all the demos for kids. So it's just like, is is this is this cheeseburger too spicy for you? Would you like the sweeter cheese? But don't worry, we'll make you a sweeter one. We'll do this. You know, it's it's the ultimate corporate fucking strategy when you look at this thing, which is genius. Uh, written very well. So like uh, the writers for that worked within <laughs> the insane restrictions that were placed on them and the the insane sort of level of marketing research and everything else that went into that and still wrote a very emotional piece, uh, which I think requires, um, you know, some admiration and attention to, you know, it's fascinating. How'd you guys feel when you watched the movie? Um, I was up all night thinking about it really. Uh, and it's strange for me to say that with a comic book movie, but I really was up all night sort of processing uh, where the films could go, uh, processing uh, the emotional context of these different bits. And uh, I see why people are seeing it multiple times because there's so much crammed onto that screen. And I don't want to be that guy that's advertising the biggest movie out there right now for everybody to go see. I just feel like it's interesting to sort of talk about uh, what they did with it. 
what they did well with it and why it's successful. Um, and, uh, you know, to, 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 to walk out of any film, whether I'm seeing the new Spider-Man movie or if I'm seeing, you know, uh, the new Gaspar Van Noe movie or whatever. Like if I walk out of that film and I'm thinking about it all night, I'm thinking about it into the next day, then they did something right. And it's entertaining. And they made, what is the amount now? $1.386 billion. Can you imagine? The budget for that was $200 million, which in itself is like, oh my God, $200 million. But the return, <laughs> insanity. And as a filmmaker, as like an independent filmmaker, you look at that and you go, I don't even, there's science and there's uh, marketing and there's business savvy that is in there that I do not understand. I do not, I don't, I like, it's insanity to me. And you, you just look at every piece of that film, every moment of that film, and then sitting in an audience with kids and with adults, there was a woman sitting next to me that was just squealing like a child and crying through the whole, through the whole movie. I mean, there's something legitimate about that. You know, like the, the, the crafting and the manipulation that goes into the emotional context of that film is pretty nuts, man. And then when you look at it, at the end of the day, you look at all these special effects and all this grandiose stuff and you can pull it apart and you get into all that stuff. But it, it just comes down to those emotional moments. It comes down to what made Spider-Man so interesting in the beginning for me as a comic book, which is Peter Parker and the level of stress that that young kid has put on him when he gets bit by a radioactive spider. And in the actual universe that has existed since the beginning with the death of his uncle and how that shapes him. Um, and then uh, they slowly, because this Spider-Man world that they've had since the Marvel Cinematic Universe started has been a little weird and different because they really don't talk about Uncle Ben. They really don't get into any of that stuff. And it's just his, his, uh, his aunt, May, um, and how they brought it all full circle how they brought it back to that moment that happened in all the other Spider-Man characters to him. And everything happens in this movie where he sees the death of his aunt. She gives him the line, great responsibility line. Then he comes face to face with the character that killed her, very similar to what the original did with Uncle Ben. And um, it's going to kill him. But it's so wonderfully written he has to confront himself, like another version of himself that keeps him from doing it. Pretty powerful shit, man. I hate to say it. I don't hate to say it. The cynical side of me hates to say it, but pretty powerful shit. Like in this packaging, in this giant, we're going to please everybody thing, they actually wrote something that was very emotional. So I don't know. That's my opinion on the new Spider-Man, whether or not you wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, begrudgingly, I liked it. <laughs> the old grumpy guy in me went, yeah, all right, I'm in. All right. But the world feels like a mess to me now. It really does. I don't know what to grab onto. I don't know what to grasp onto. Sure, there's unlimited options that can happen in life. There are unlimited, every decision comes with multiple choices. And there, you know, as Dr. Strange said in the Avengers, like I've seen, you know, millions of possibilities here and like I get that stuff but it starts to get 
I'm curious to see where they go with the series now because it starts to get too far beyond being able to connect emotionally with somebody. And I feel that way when you start to broaden your demo. If you start to broaden your demo to the point where you make $1.386 billion, um, it gets harder to identify, I think. And so then a lot of the, the themes and a lot of the stuff that they have to put in these broad things are like overarching themes, like, you know, I'm scared of this or growing up as a teenager, like all these like specific things that we all face and feel, but how long can that go for? I'm curious to see what they do. I feel like part of me feels like they have to bring it back in, which they, I think they know because they kind of set it up for that at the end where he is, he's got nobody. He's on his own. He's living with his shit. You know, I get it. And what the fuck was with the venom sequence? What are you doing here? I like, I'm confused by it. So Eddie Brock now knows about Spider-Man because he had that conversation with a guy at a bar. So he's going to go back to his own time and probably go talk to the Spider-Man that was in his own time. But which Spider-Man was that? Cause I always assumed that that was Tom Holland. So is the Spider-Man in his timeline going to be one of these other Spider-Man, which is interesting. Or is it going to be somebody else? Like who's that going to be? And they've left it open for that fucking reason. Right. And then why did a piece of Venom get left on the bar there? Because I thought that magic would just suck everybody out of there. And then what reason's that for? Is that for Marvel's version of Spider-Man? Like, how does this work now? What's going on? I don't know. I guess it's too much for us uh, normal folk to wrap our heads around, right? I'll just uh, wait for the next one. I'll present my vein and let them plug back in uh, and uh, feed me that morphine that I need. <laughs> All right, I'm rambling. That's it, guys. That's the end of the episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. A lot more on the way. That's it. All right, I'll see you next Tuesday. Oh, it's me.